In an industry fraught with headline risk and still in the national spotlight, the future of skilled nursing will be wrapped up in words, namely the term nursing home. Deep Cateau, CEO of Georgia nonprofit operator AG Rhodes, says the term will become obsolete, but populations will still need to have communities where individuals can no longer be taken care of at home or in an assisted living setting. It's all part of redefining the sector at a crucial point in time, as leaders also take a hard look at the future business model of skilled nursing facilities. Some operators have already started specializing in higher acuity, short-term care, while others wonder what parts of the care continuum will pick up long-term nursing home residents. I spoke with Deke more on this separation, catalysts for change, and how nonprofits like AG Rhodes will fit into the skilled nursing sector in the years ahead. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight an upcoming event. On December 1st, Skilled Nursing News and Aging Media are presenting the inaugural Continuum Conference. This event will bring together executives from across Aging Media's publications, including Skilled Nursing, Home Health, Senior Living, Behavioral Health, and Hospice. Learn from peers outside your network and build new relationships. Request an invitation to this exclusive in-person event in Arlington, Virginia, by sending an email to events at agingmedia.com. All right, Deke. Uh, Well, thank you so much for joining us. So first off, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you got into this role, uh, coming to the U.S. from Trinidad and taking on a leadership position at AG Rhodes. And, you know, if there's anything that from your experience you feel future leaders should know. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, And yes, I do come from a a far ways away. I joke with people and tell them I'm from the south uh, because Trinidad is actually the island furthest south in the Caribbean. Um, And I kind of got into this industry when I moved to the U.S., kind of incidentally. My wife is from New York, from the U.S. That's, you know, that's the real reason I'm here in the United States. Um, But she also used to work in nursing homes well um, before me. Um, And she's the one that really encouraged me to, to, to get into the industry. You know, it's funny you ask that question because I was actually recently reading a book called The Prepared Leader. And it, it made me see how much of my upbringing in Trinidad really has played into my leadership and my growth as a leader. And I think a lot of it is, is I would start by saying, sort of my, my socio-cultural competence or, or background has allowed me to frame stuff a lot differently. Me coming into this industry being, of course, one, a Black man and two, a Black man from a different country has really allowed me to open my eyes and, and relate to a lot of our staff in healthcare and in nursing homes who look a lot like me and who are from different ethnicities and different backgrounds as well. So it's kind of opened me up there. It's brought um, you know some level of, of empathy and tolerance because of that as well, just kind of understanding what what um, you know what certain groups and what difficulties certain groups have in the workplace. Excellent. And was there anything from your experience, anything else that you feel future leaders should know? Uh, yeah, I think the work ethic um, that, you know, has been, and I don't know so much if this is Trinidad or just my parents has instilled on me. Um, I think that work ethic is so important for future leaders. Um, I think as I mentor um, young leaders now, one thing they need to understand is that 
importance of working hard, um, importance of, of staying up with the industry, learning about the industry. Um, I spend a lot of time reading about the industry. I spend a lot of time reading about leadership. Um, so I think as, as future leaders come up, I, I think that whole idea of being prepared, again, like the book I'm reading now, um, being prepared for leadership. It's not, no one is born a leader. Some people are born with leadership qualities and leadership skills and leadership traits. Um, but leadership is really something that you have to work and continually work on. So I consider myself a leader in progress. I'm never too old or too, too um, proud to, to learn from other leaders. Mm. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Medicaid and how that relates to nonprofits. So with so much focus on states increasing Medicaid rates, how does that make you feel as an operator of facilities with mostly Medicaid beneficiaries? Yeah. So, um, you know, I proudly um, run a mission-driven nonprofit organization. And most of who we serve are, are the underserved and the underinsured. Um, and, you, and you said that they are on Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid systems, not just in this state, but throughout the country, are severely underfunded. Um, and I understand the antecedents and the reasons for that. Um, but it really makes an industry like this, it makes the ability to give that high-level care challenging. Um, so I'm glad when I hear these discourses throughout the nation about increasing in, of, of Medicaid rates. I'm very happy when I hear it because I think um, that is going to, to be equivalent to an increase in the quality of care and the quality of services um, that are received. Um, you know, most states are paid through Medicaid um, based on costs um, that, that were several years behind. Um, you know, Georgia, we have moved to the 2019 cost report now, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll move even further. But for a long time, we were stuck back on the 2012 cost. So we've been paid based on the cost of goods and services several years back. Um, and I think this is a system that needs to be to be fixed. It's a challenging one to fix, though. I, I don't envy, you know, the regulators and the, the politicians. I don't envy that task at all because it is a very costly system and a difficult one to fix. And then was there anything you wanted to add about the state of Medicaid reimbursements in Georgia currently? Yeah, well, you know, like I said, we we were, were fortunate um, to have fairly recently moved from the 2012 cost report to the 2019 cost report. And I know there have been some talk about us going even further. So I think we've come a long way. I'm also pleased to be um, in a state that, you know, pays, incentivizes providers even further based on, on the cognitive ability of some residents and, and how much work um, the staff is doing towards that based on staffing as well, and based on accreditations and certifications that some providers um, may do to sort of prove their excellence, um, so to speak. So it's not where it should be, but it has come a long way in the 20 plus years I've been in this state um, operating facilities um, based on Medicaid. It's, it's come a long way and I, I hope it continues to go further. I hope there's no talk as, as we hear sometimes about curtailing the system, because I think it's an ex extremely important safety net um, for so many of our population. And do you think the Medicaid increases are a step toward more permanent support or should operators treat it with caution as a temporary fix? You know, I'm, a, I'm sort of a glass half full guy. Um, so I'm enthusiastic. I think with that enthusiasm, I would strongly recommend that providers 
continue to advocate for for it. And I think by doing that, you you keep it on on the the, the front burner of the legislature later. So you know, I'm I'm gonna say that I'm 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 hopeful it it remains, and my forecast is enthusiastic. But at the same time, as a provider, you know, I think every conversation we have with legislators, we need to keep that reimbursement, that Medicaid reimbursement, on the front burner, lest it be dropped, and lest um, that glass becomes half empty, and we and we have revert. Mm-hmm. And then let's broaden these questions a little bit. You know, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the future of nonprofits in the skilled nursing space. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So we've already seen some some decrease or some decline in, in skilled nursing inventory um, nationwide. Um, undoubtedly, COVID um, low occupancy rates has had something to do with that. You know, I've said for two years now that with that reduction in inventory, I think the nonprofit nursing home sector is well-placed. I think because of the quality most nonprofits espouse, they're well-placed. I think because of our access to fundraising, we're well-placed and our ability to innovate in the skilled nursing space, we're well-placed. So I think it's a really positive forecast um, for for nonprofits. Um, I think I think we do this business the right way. And I'm not by any means saying that for-profits do not. Um, but I, I, I certainly think um, that nonprofits, you know, for, for the most part, um, are able to provide a higher level of care and services. You know, even in my own in my own um, circumstance, some of our some of our programs that we have, our music therapy program, our horticulture therapy programs, um, our work with technology, you know, a lot of that is afforded to us because we are a nonprofit, because these are unfunded and unreimbursed programs. Um, but again, our our, our access um, to to fundraising um, puts us in a, I think, a uniquely competitive position. And then there's also been some talk on the future makeup of skilled nursing, a separation of long term and short term care. And I'm curious what you make of that. Yeah, so yeah, I've heard the talk as well. You know, I got into this industry you know, right at the start or right after, you know, PPS and, and uh, you know, rehab being such an important, short-term care being such an important part of the reimbursement um, of it. Um, and then, of course, I was in this industry in the, the 2000s where we, um, nursing homes, just like AG Roads, certainly and suddenly became health and rehab. You know, everyone added health and rehab to their names. And now when I hear, you know, conversation about, Perhaps going back, my concern is is of where the reimbursement is, um, because that short-term reimbursement is what enables a lot of us really to make that bottom line, right? So the shortfall in Medicaid funding in most cases is made up for um, sort of by that short, short-term Medicare. Um, so that that concerns me from that perspective. But I think if we are able to continue to raise those Medicaid, Medicaid rates, you know, there may be a path to it. Then also when we look at the, the home-based services and the importance of home-based services and the movement towards home-based services, really it makes me wonder what place is short-term rehab going to continue to have. A good example I would give is outpatient rehab services, which um, we offer at our homes. And in fact, we do a lot of it in, in, in one of our homes, um, but it's really not a, a financially lucrative sort of service. 
Um, it's a service that we pretty much break even on, although it is a very important community service. Um, so I could see through those outpatient services, a lot of short-term care being done, but we definitely need to look at the reimbursement of it to ensure that providers are, are incentivized to do it and are able to do it. Even as a nonprofit, you know, we, we preach in the nonprofit world, no margin, no mission. So I think we, we have to ensure that there's a margin there to, to enable that type of care to be continue to be given. Mm-hmm. So let's talk recent reform efforts at the state and federal level. You know, for-profit ownership of nursing homes has been taking a lot of fire recently. And, you know, as a nonprofit owner, what do you make of this scrutiny and criticism? And do you think that it's needed? Yeah, you know, I didn't always work for AG Roads. I worked for a for-profit um, company prior. I understand a lot of the need to sort of trace those funds, um, you know, to see where those funds are emanating from, to ensure that those funds are being properly used. I think that need should be there as long as there, as long as a provider is accepting government government funding. I think as long as it's you're accepting government funds, then obviously folks should want to see um, or, or trace that. I do think we have to be careful because, like I said, I worked in a for-profit organization before and we gave great care to that organization. So I think you have bad actors on both sides of the spectrum. And I don't think as a nation we want to, to create a system which would, would sort of stagnate businesses from being able to, to, to get into it um, because a lot of our good innovation, a lot of our good technology also comes from these you know, for-profit groups as well. So I think it's a precarious situation that we're in. I think the vilification of nursing homes has caused a lot of this. I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I work for a nonprofit because we do not come under some of those scrutinies because our, our information is public anytime, anyway, right? You could Google um, our financial information. Um, so we come under less um, scrutiny financially, so to speak. But I, I, I completely do understand. I understand the public has a right to know this situation now. And I understand, particularly after COVID and the, the level of, of, of debt um, that we saw in our nation's nursing homes, I think we need to be more visible. I think we need to open up our transparency uh, as an industry. Um, you know, I tell my staff all the time, we can't be afraid to let people into our industry, to let them see um, what we're doing. Because um, for a long time in, in this industry, we we literally did not do that. We literally have not done that. So on the one hand, I completely understand it. And I am all for truth and transparency because I think that instills trust in the public. But on the other hand, I'm, I, I think we need to be careful um, that we do not estrange our business from really re- um, folks who, who I think have a very important role to play as, as for-profit providers as well. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple topical questions for you next. Um, you know, the first involves the CDC moving to end indoor mask mandates for some providers. And I'm wondering how much of an issue masks are for AG Roads at this point. And then will you have a masking policy for flu season? Yeah, you know, sort of have a personal and a professional view on this. I think mask wearing is going to be here in our environments for a long time. I think even the decrease in the incidences of flu that we've had in the last two years um, has shown us that the masking does help. 
Um, so I am I, I I am very very cautious about you know not us not using masks to to that level. Um, I do think we have to be practical and smart, and and where we use these masks, i.e., in patient care areas, is very important. Um, so I think we have to be wise where that's concerned. I also think those of us in this industry who take care of, of um, people living with dementia and other cognitive illnesses um, need to understand how difficult it is for those individuals living with dementia to when they're being cared for by someone who they really cannot see, who they really um, you know, cannot, cannot relate to on that most intimate of visual levels. I think that certainly has to be considered as well. AG Rhodes is going to be very slow with any any mask reduction. Um, and that's, again, just so that we can be wise, you know, and ensure that we are taking care of the health and safety of our residents, because at the end of the day, that is, that is so tantamount. I also have concerns that nursing homes are being asked to do things that no one else in our society is doing. So... It is very difficult for a staff member to, or, or a family member, a visitor, you know, to walk off the street, to come out of the grocery store where there's no mask requirement and then step into a nursing home and that switch immediately, you know, pulls, steps on. I'm also concerned when I see such a lack of masking requirements in hospitals and other healthcare settings, but yet they are so strong in nursing homes. Um, and when I ask that, most people tell me, well, it's because nursing homes take care of the most vulnerable. And I answer and say, well, they come to us from the hospital. So, so I think we have some, some contradictions in that. But, you know, to answer you in a, a nutshell, AG Rhodes is going to be very, very cautious about any mask reductions. Um, we're going to, to, to certainly ensure that in, in resident care areas, um, we, we ensure that the correct protective equipment, personal protective equipment is worn um, to ensure the health and safety of our, of our um, residents. Hmm. And another topical question for you. So Hurricane Ian just swept through Florida, and I'm curious if the storm had any effect on AG Road's properties or as a neighboring state. Yeah, no, we did not. Atlanta was, was quite um, fortunate. I actually was in Nebraska and flew back just to ensure that that you know I was here should should anything happen. Uh, we did reach out to some of our colleagues in in in, in neighboring states, reach out to a colleague in Florida who who runs the uh, their leading age affiliate there. Um, and we have offered assistance to them, which includes placement of of residents if needed. Um, and I think that's just what a good a good neighbor should do. Um, but we were fortunate um, this time we were unscathed, but this is a sign to us that these crises keep keep propping up um, and we need to ensure that we are prepared when they do happen. Hmm. So the last time we spoke, you said that AG Rhodes was planning on making private rooms a requirement for future builds and that you are retrofitting your Marietta campus to accommodate the private room initiative. And I'm curious how that is coming along. Yes. So I'm very happy to report that in mid-July, we did start our construction at our CARB location. And it's not just a retrofit, actually. It's a a two-part project. The first part of it, we are building 
72 brand new units, all private rooms, household model of care, 12 residents per household. And we're, we're, we're specifically um, catering there to our residents living with dementia. And then the second phase of that would be to go back into the existing building and retrofit that building to ensure that we would have um, 58 private rooms, no more semi-private rooms. So the end of the day, and hopefully that would be the end of um, 2023, December 2023, January 2024, um, we would have complete private room accommodations. So happy to say it started. Dirt has been turned. Uh, we finished our site work, actually have some structures going up now, and we're really excited, especially because of, again, the clientele we serve. Um, you know, there are very few folks in the nation that are doing this now for the, for the clientele we serve, and we, we hope that it um, becomes a replicable model others, not just in the state of Georgia, could, could look at and see that this can be done. We're doing it for several reasons also. One the probably most basic of obvious reasons is to ensure that the dignity of every one of our residents, that they can live in a private room um, if they so choose to. Um, so it's to ensure that, that, that dignity. Um, the second reason, as we saw with COVID, private rooms are well, are much better able to prevent the spread of infection. So that becomes a huge part of our, about it. And third, we've been working with person-directed care in our, our communities for such a long time. Um, and now we're happy that we're going to have the environment um, that could really support and nurture um, that sort of model of, 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 of person-directed care. So it's so interesting to me because private rooms for a mostly Medicaid population, it's not really something that we've heard too much of. Uh, so I'm curious how AG Rhodes has achieved this for its community. Yeah, well, you know, again, we've we've innovated for quite a long time at AG Rhodes. That's the first thing I'll say. So we've we were first to do many, many things um, that people thought were not able to be done for for this population. I gave you the example earlier of our horticulture and music therapy programs, which are not inexpensive programs um, that we've been able to do. We have leveraged the fact that we are a nonprofit to be able to do this. We have been very, very well and graciously supported by the Atlanta community to the tune thus far of, of over $7 million that has come into us um, in the form of, of donations for this project from the Atlanta community. And then the project is on our Cobb campus, which, which also qualified um, through a governmental program called a New Market Tax Credit Program, um, which also qualified us for about $7 million, just under $7 million um, in equity towards this project as well. So, you know, I talk about these public-private ventures. I talk about, about really harnessing the community to achieve a desired result. And I think this is a great example of that. Excellent. And so let's switch to staffing briefly. I'm curious how staffing has looked since the beginning of the year and how that has translated to occupancy growth for you folks. Yes, so staffing has gotten a bit better. It is still, you know, it's still not where we want it to be. Um, we still have about five um, agency staff that we, we use and we're, we're day by day, you know, de- decreasing, um, you know, that amount. We probably are using about 20% less agency than we were, than we were using a few months ago. So it definitely is getting better. I'm, I'm afraid to say that it's normalizing. 
um, because you know it's. It, I just think staffing issue that we're having is, is you know this great resignation is a, a national and global phenomenon, not just you know related to our industry. But um, again, we're getting we're getting getting better. And then. What does the future look like for AG Roads? Uh, you know, are there any initiatives or other changes on the way for you? Yeah, I think the last time we spoke, we spoke about our staffing agency, which which I couldn't give too much information on as yet. Um, but we have we have since launched um, the agency, and we're in the recruitment phase for it now. We are actually actively hiring hiring for staff now. Um, so very happy to say that that has come. You know that has come through. Um, we are in a as an organization. We're also in planning phases. Um, you know, because no sooner than we turn the ground into carb into our carb community, you know, we have two other communities to think about. So we're in the planning phases now of you know what do they look like or what will they look like in five, ten, fifteen years? Um, you know, do we have the capacity to the space to rebuild them to do similar retrofitting on those um, campuses as well? And then what, you know, we're in such a volatile regulatory environment that, that we always have to keep our eyes on that. Where are the regulations going? Um, how, how prepared are we um, to respond to some of those, you know, regulatory changes that may come our way as well? So, you know, while it's, it certainly is uncertain times, um, I think COVID allowed us, has allowed us an opportunity to really think big and to really think out the box um, as an organization. Um, and, you know, and we continue to do so. And that kind of bleeds into another question that I had about uh, regulatory changes. So, you know, you mentioned that there are a lot of regulatory changes that have either been proposed or are coming. And what are you most concerned about from a regulatory perspective going into 2023? Oh, the easy one is staffing. You know, we we actually as an organization, have always dedicated ourselves to having high staff ratios. Um, so this would have never concerned me. Any any regulation related to staffing would have never concerned me before recently. And that's quite simply because, as we just said, there's a, a national or, or rather even an international, you know, paucity or lack in staffing. So So we're concerned, you know, that if we are uh, mandated through through a staffing regulation, um, which we support, right? But if we're mandated to do it and there's not the supply of staff at this time, we're concerned with where that would leave us. So I would say that is the, the main one. Again, all, really all four staffing mandates have always been, I think, I think, I think they're a good thing. Timing of it is just what, what concerns me that we're not forced into a regulatory system or that we are not able to, to fulfill. You know, um, the other other regulations that I know we're seeing coming forward is regulations related to infection control, um, to having infection preventionists, um, which we support fully. You know, AG Rhodes has worked throughout the panic and even before with with an infectious disease physician um, to kind of help mold our, our policies around infection control and our procedures around infection control, our procedures around antimicrobial stewardship. So we're prepared on many, many fronts, but the staffing one is one that that I don't think any nursing home in this time is is quite um, ready for, is quite prepared for. Mm-hmm. So then how is AG Roads currently preparing for staffing-related regulations like the federal minimum staffing requirement? Well, I just told you about the agency. 
right? So that's that's kind of one of our sort of ace up our sleeve. Um, so we are we are ramping up. Um, we are in the process of hiring now. We understand that um, you know the sort of the the schedule that staff of yesterday we're interested in is not the schedule of staff today. We understand we have to be more flexible there. Um, we understand that we have to be, be be wiser in how and when we pay these employees as well. So hopefully, um, you know, we'll we'll be able to do that through through this new aspect of our company, the Age Road Staffing Agency. Mm-hmm. And then, was there anything that you wanted to add in terms of preparing for the other staffing related regulation, uh, which is updates to the five star rating system? Yeah, so you know the five five star system is what it is. We 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 certainly you know have to ensure that that quality remains high in our homes. Um, it is something that we monitor on almost a weekly basis. You know where are we as far as those critical quality indicators are? You know, continue to look really closely at the hospital readmissions. Um, I know during COVID. A lot of us providers took our eyes off of a lot of those things just because we were dealing with the immediacy of um, of COVID nineteen and infection control. But we have begun to, to to switch our trajectory back to just what I would say is regular and proper resident care. I still hope and wish the day would come where we see a person directed aspect of of the five star system. You know, something's not just showing you know, showing how you do care for those residents. I think uh, person-directed care and culture change has been written into our regulations since the 80s, um, but very few people are actually doing it. Very few people are actually practicing it. In fact, most of our nation's nursing homes, we do the opposite. We do, we practice a medical model of care. And I would love to see those that do practice person-directed care are properly incentivized through it or properly recognized. And I think the five-star system would be a great um, opportunity and a great area to do so. Mm -hmm. So let's get into some big picture questions next. We can start with your vision of the skilled nursing facility of the future. Such such a a great question. Um, You know, in Nebraska, I heard... Um, from a colleague that just broke ground on an intergenerational um, project, a project that includes both elders, seniors, um, housing project that includes both seniors, elders, and college university students living on the same campus. You know that that took my mind away, and it's and, and you know it started. Ground has been broken on that. I think these are the kind of models that we will see. Um, going well into the future. I think we're going to see models with less hallways, less institutional type models, smaller units. I don't don't know if we call them houses or we call them households, but I think you're definitely going to see a a move to a a, a reduction in those units, smaller, smaller groups of people living together as they do in a regular household. Um, So I think the sky's the limit there for, 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 um, you know, for those those sort of products, if you want to call them that. Um, I know the CCRC world or, or just the retirement community world. I know the um, university life plan community is, is, is something that we're seeing more and more of them opening up. We have several in Georgia here right now. Um, and those are quite simply retirement communities that are built in 
and in tandem um, with with colleges and with universities, um, I would just like to see more of these being built. I don't know of any that's being built really for for um, people who live on Medicaid and people who may be under underserved or underinsured. Um, so I would like to see those models sort of pivot towards that. Um, but I think where you're probably getting at, and a lot of people ask me, and a lot of people I know believe that our industry is at risk. You know, I spoke to someone recently who told me in 50 years, there will be no more nursing homes. And I think the name nursing home probably wouldn't be there. But I think, in, I personally think in 50 years, we will still need to have communities. And I, I stress and I emphasize the word community to take care um, of individuals who can no longer be taken care of at home, who can no longer be um, taken care of in, in an assisted living setting. So I, I see the forecast as being good. Um, I just think that the, these models would change. The, the models of housing would, would certainly be changing. Excellent. And in our last podcast episode, uh, we had Eitan Zephyrin with Pearl Healthcare talk about the move toward a mini hospital model for skilled nursing facilities, just kind of referring to uh, higher acuity. Do you see this happening? Do you think uh, skilled nursing facilities have to prepare for delivering more complex care on site? Oh, I mean, this this phenomenon has started happening for the last 10 years. Um, I, I know of nursing homes right now that are mini hospitals. I, I, don't think, I don't think we are as prepared for them as we should be. I think um, the, 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 the issues around that are related to one staffing that we spoke about already, um, what, what having adequate staffing and adequately trained staffing, you know, to ensure that we can take care of that high level of acuity. I also think as we move towards that mini hospital model, I think regulations, the five-star um, system we just spoke about, I mean, these things are going to have to pivot, right? Um, because I don't think they are right now built for that mini hospital. A lot of the regulations that we have are not necessarily built for the for the mini hospital, you, you know, model either. So um, I just think these are key considerations that that we need to have, that regulators need to have. Um, but certainly, the acuity that I've seen over the last two years, the increase in acuity, um, has really been startling. I think the other issue there with that is is finding a place then for where does the lower acuity setting of the assisted living fit into that tandem. Because again, I hate to go back to finances. Right now, in many states, including the state of Georgia, personal care homes and assisted livings, right now, you know, they are not a product that's available to most people on Medicaid. Um, so, so by virtue of creating these, are we creating a system whereby then only those individuals who can afford it would be able to use, to, to use the services of these, you know, mini hospitals? So. I think many things to consider. That's that's sort of the unique thing about the United States healthcare system. It is so interconnected, yet there's so many fractures between whether we look at acute care settings like hospitals, whether we look at, at, at subacute care settings like nursing homes, um, or, or, or certainly non-acute settings like, like assisted livings. I think it's a connected system. And I think any change that we have in any one level of care, we need to look at the impact on the other levels and how do they respond to those changes as well. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, um, but it is a fact that, you know, we are seeing sicker and sicker residents in our, 
our nursing homes, who, by the way, are living longer and longer. Mm-hmm. So last question for you, since this is the Rethink podcast, what do you think is one thing that providers should rethink about skilled nursing? I think we should rethink, this is even bigger than skilled nursing. I think we should rethink and remodel how we think about our nation's elders. I think we do not think about them with enough dignity, with enough respect. I think we should rethink how our current skilled nursing communities are based on schedules, when people get up in the morning, when they go to rehab, when they eat, when they sleep, when they bathe. Um, I think we need to rethink this model of care where, where that is dictated by providers um, and look to it having or should be dictated by the resident themselves. I wake up when I want, sleep when I want, have a bath when I want to. There's so much we need to completely rethink as providers. I think we need to, to, to rethink how we have treated our staff in this industry for so many years. I think we need to rethink the, the, the cardinal rule that I learned 20 years ago in nursing homes. I, I want to say this the right way so it's not misunderstood. But I, you know, 20 years ago and to this day, we teach our staff the resident is always right as a, as a, as a consumer-based reality. And I think by doing this, we have said, not verbally, but by doing this, if one person's always right, then the other is always wrong. And that person has become the staff. So I think we have fragmented our nursing homes. I think we need to rethink the, uh, some, what someone taught me a long time ago. You treat your staff right. You take care of your staff and they in turn will take care of your residents. I don't think that's how our nursing homes in general have been run. I think we have run them almost caste-like where the residents and management form the the top caste or class. And then underneath we have CNAs, LPNs, and and sort of a housekeeper sort of on a a lower level. I think we need to rethink all of these things. We need to rethink how we schedule our staff. You know, again, are those schedules based on our management's convenience and are not on the staff's convenience? Have we allowed the staff to be able to live, to be able to have children, to be able to do things with their families? Or are we so concerned with, hey, them cutting hair from 7 to 3, 3 to 11 or 11 to 7? So I could go on and on here if we talk about rethinking. (laughs) There's a lot of rethinking to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all really good points for that and something for uh, us to think about, I think. Well, that was it. So thank you so much for joining us today, Deke. Uh, It was really nice to get your insight on a variety of topics. It is so wonderful, Amy, and I thank you very much. Um, Thank you guys for listening and thank you for what you do to to keep the spotlight um, on nursing homes at, at such a difficult time in our nation's history. Of course. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Amy Stulick for Skilled Nursing News. Thank you for listening.